Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 9, The Bosnian Crisis. With the signing of the Anglo-Russian Entente in August of 1907, Europe was now a bit of a weird place in terms of diplomacy. We discussed at the end of last week that after British Ambassador Arthur Nicholson and Russian Foreign Minister Alexander Izvolsky agreed to settle their nation's colonial disputes, we now have what is commonly referred to as the formation of the pre-war alliance system. The Triple Alliance, made up of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy, and the loosely identified Triple Entente of Great Britain, France, and Russia. But of course, the emergence of these two rival camps did not represent an overall shift to more aggressive policies taken by the great powers. In fact, by 1908, many of the states making up the alliance system were all undergoing a bit of soul-searching. Russia, in the wake of their war with Japan, had retreated from foreign affairs in order to address its laundry list of domestic issues. Germany and France, emerging from the Algeciras Conference in 1906, were both feeling slightly whiplashed over the Moroccan dispute, and were eager to get back to the drawing board. And the English, who although having no military obligations to any European power, still retained the ability to act as a referee between diplomatic disputes, and could, at least in theory anyway, swing their way between the two power blocks in order to pursue their own imperial goals. Even the Italians, who have remained on the periphery of our narrative so far, were actively seeking their own nationalist ambitions, when, in 1900 and 1902, pledged Italian neutrality to the French, in exchange for recognition of Italian interests in Libya. So, although for historical convenience we often like to make it seem that the two blocs were on a collision course, that simply was not the case. In fact, many Europeans saw the emergence of the two power camps as a renewal of the terms first laid out after the Congress of Vienna in 1815, in that the balance of power on the continent had been restored. Certainly, it looked a little different on a map, as new nations had appeared and old ones had expanded or shrunk in the years since Vienna, but overall, with power being balanced between the two blocs, many assumed that it would be an effective deterrence for future conflict. Now, in hindsight, this may seem pretty laughable from our point of view, but remember that alliances and the division of power had worked pretty well since 1815. Conflicts which had occurred were isolated on the frontiers of Europe, such as Manchuria, the Crimea, or the Balkans. There had been no major war on the continent since Napoleon, and many statesmen, from both sides of the fence, had credited that to the presence of alliances, acting to deter any single power from taking the next step. Threats had been made in the various crises up to this point, but in the end had always been resolved through diplomatic settlements, so really not many were screaming that Europe was on the one-way road to destruction. But of course, you could also argue that with stability comes the ever-present risk of collapse. Once balance has been achieved, it is often more difficult to maintain as time goes on, and a good example of this was when in 1908, trouble in the Balkans would again take the forefront. Now, we have not spoken about the Balkans since way back in episode 3, when, in 1877-78, the Russian Tsar Alexander II launched an attack against the Ottoman Empire, along with the Serbs, Romanians, and Montenegrins, in an attempt to carve out a place for the Slavic states to declare their sovereignty. The Congress of Berlin in 1878, overseen by our old friend Otto von Bismarck, had restructured the borders in the region, and gave the struggling Ottomans a new lease on life by convincing the other great powers to sign a pact, sort of like a hands-off policy towards the Ottoman Empire, since you'll recall, the interests of the great powers, combined with the fear of Slavic nationalism, could result in a complete destabilization of the region, 
as both would be scrambling to carve out chunks of the weakened Ottoman regime. The reason why I took such a long break between discussions concerning the Balkans was, for one, I wanted to focus on the diplomatic changes in France, England, and Russia, but also because, well, that is what the Europeans did. In 1897, Russia and Austria-Hungary signed an agreement to put the Balkans on ice, in which neither side would exercise a hand in either the supporting or oppressing of the nationalist sentiments of the Slavs, while in 1903, a second agreement, known as the Mersteg Agreement, concerning Macedonia, was signed between the Austro-Hungarians, Russians, and Ottomans, in which each power agreed to share their respective interests in the northern Greek state. But I would be remiss if I said that since the Europeans and Turks agreed to terms over the Balkans, then that was what the Slavs did as well, because let me assure you that many, especially the Serbs and Bulgarians, still had an axe to grind with both the Turks and Austro-Hungarians. There is a fascinating history there, but unfortunately, it will take way too long to dive into into any substantial detail, but I do hope to remedy some of that today. In order to address the issue concerning the Balkans in 1908, we need to reintroduce the Austro-Hungarians back into our story, because it was in Vienna where events would begin to transpire. In the Austrian capital, there had been a growing debate over whether or not the Habsburg Empire could remain capable of pursuing its own foreign policy, and recapture the prestige it once held prior to the 1867 compromise with the Hungarians. The emergence of Germany had severely weakened the bargaining power of the dual monarchy, and since it was handily defeated by German forces at Kuningratz in 1866, the Austrians had spent most of the next couple decades trying to reaffirm its status as a respectable power. Its economy was in shambles, and its military forces were in disarray, so the debate in Vienna was whether foreign policy would be uniquely Austrian, or simply be an extension of whatever Kaiser Wilhelm or von Bülow told him it would be. The Habsburg Emperor, Franz Joseph, who, yes, was still on the throne, he had come there in 1848 and will remain there until 1916 for a very impressive 68 years in power, decided that no, Austria was not finished as a power, and could still garner enough power to act independently from the bigger German brothers. So in 1906, on the advice of his nephew, Franz Ferdinand, yes, that same Franz Ferdinand, Joseph appointed Alois von Herenthal as foreign affairs minister and Konrad von Hutzendorf as chief of staff for the Austrian army. Herenthal and Hutzendorf were of the same mind in that both men agreed that adapting an aggressive foreign policy was the answer to the empire's diplomatic shortfalls. Where the two men saw the best area to implement this policy was in the Balkans, due to the long-standing suspicion of the Slavs since their Russian-backed uprising in 1877 and 78. By 1906, it looked to Joseph, Herenthal, and Hutzendorf that the Balkans were on the verge of some cataclysmic event, especially since 1903, the Serbs had begun to kick up dust. The new Serbian king, Alexander Karagagorovic, was radically anti-Austrian, and between 1906 to 1908, had angered the Habsburg monarch when he opened Serbia's beef and pork markets to the French and Bulgarians, in an effort to reduce his kingdom's dependence on Austria. To the already economically strapped Austrians, this was bad enough. But what compounded it was the belief that Karagagorovic and the Serb nationalists were looking to expand at the expense of the dual monarchy, by incorporating Bosnia and Herzegovina to form a large independent Serbian kingdom. You'll recall that Bosnia and Herzegovina had come under the administration of the dual monarchy following the Congress of Berlin. While Bosnia and Herzegovina had officially remained part of the Ottoman Empire, the Austrians had begun to occupy the country not long after 1879, but since it was still property of the Ottoman Sultan, 
the Habsburgs could not formally annex that territory without consent from the other great powers. But to Herenthal and Hutzendorf, a formal annexation of the country could be of benefit to the empire, because it would throw the ambitions of Karakagorovic and the Serbs into complete disarray, while absorbing the three million Serbs already living within Bosnia and Herzegovina. The loss of such a high number of their Serbian comrades will no doubt show the Serb king that his dream was now in shambles. The problem confronting Herenthal and Hutzendorf was that the Russians, who championed the idea of Pan-Slavism, would no doubt protest such a move. Von Herenthal, who was always more in tune with diplomacy than his military counterpart, hoped to work something out with Russia before the annexation could occur. Fortunately for Herenthal, Russia had its own ambitions in the region, which Herenthal could cater to in order to secure a settlement. Alexander Izvolsky, who became Russia's foreign affairs minister after the resignation of Count Lambsdorff, had a goal to give Russia a period of stability and peace as it recovered from its war with Japan. In order to guarantee security, Izvolsky had come to terms with Russia's main imperial rivals, the British and Japanese, which signaled that Russian interests in Central and Far East Asia were now on hold. Izvolsky believed that in order for Russia to regain its honor, it had to focus its ambitions towards Europe. But if it were to open up trade and markets to the West, it would need to secure access to sea lanes and ports close to the European continent. What Izvolsky was after was Russian access to two key waterways, the Bosphorus and Dardanelle Straits, giving Russia access to the Mediterranean through the Black and Aegean Seas. If you need help situating this, I've uploaded a map to the Great War Podcast.podbean.com in case you want to follow along. So, Herenthal and Izvolsky found their pretext to begin negotiations when in July of 1908, a group known as the Young Turks had seized control of Constantinople and had forced the Ottoman Sultan to sign a series of concessions. The Young Turks were a group of educated military officers, artists, scientists, and law practitioners who had become disillusioned with the corrupt and increasingly weak autocratic rule of the Sultan. Similar to the boxers in China, the Young Turks believed that the Sultan was a mere European puppet, who had abandoned the values of the once great Islamic empire in exchange for western cash. Although the revolt was bloodless, it did force the sultan to restore the civilian parliament which had been dissolved several decades earlier. But the key thing is that the Young Turk movement signified to the Austrians and Russians that the political situation in Constantinople was now unstable, and that meant that the status quo which had been kept since 1897 was now at risk. So on September 16, 1908, Arenthal and Izvolsky met in secret at the Moravian castle of Buklau. Now this is where it gets interesting. Since the meeting took place in secret, no minutes were kept and we have no dependable records which tell us what really happened. Most of the sources we do have are second-hand, passed through other ministers who talked to either Arenthal or Izvolsky after the meeting, but it is fairly clear that at some point during their four-hour discussion, the two men did come to some sort of agreement. Russia would agree to recognize the Austrian annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina in exchange for Austrian support of Russian access to the Dardanelles and Bosphorus Straits. In other words, Izvolsky was willing to ignore the ambitions of their Slavic allies, the Serbs, all in exchange for access of the two waterways. No timetable for the annexation was set, nor were any conditions outlining how the whole deal would actually go down. It is all a bit of a jumbled mess, but what can be pulled from all this is that neither men had been totally honest in their dealings. Although at this point it was just a meeting between two senior diplomats, what happened after turned it into a full-blown international crisis. Because on October 6, 1908, Austria annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, 
to the complete shock of the English, Germans, French, Russians, and especially the Serbs, because neither Arenthal nor his Volsky had bothered to notify their alliance partners about their plans. Izvolsky, who had gone on vacation following the Buklau meeting, was caught blindsided, and was further disheartened when he received news that Tsar Nicholas II, having read the press release issued by Herenthal, refused to recognize the annexation. Now this was not good news. But there did turn out to be a silver lining. Since the Buklau meeting had taken place secretly, there was no official evidence or witnesses to either support or disprove either Izvolsky or Herenthal's statements. The Russian foreign minister argued that he had been double-crossed and betrayed by his Austrian counterpart, while Herenthal countered that the Russians were late in fulfilling their end of the supposed timetable, which prompted the Austrians to act. So really, it was a classic case of he said, but he said. Izvolsky was forced to save face in the wake of Russian and Serbian anger. The Serbs, who had always looked to Russia for support, were now confronted with an alarming development. Not only had the Austrians annexed land which they had coveted, but that the Russians had allowed them to do so. Not sure who to believe, King Gergogorovic soon demanded that Serbia be compensated for their loss, not only of territory, but of the three million Serbs who were now living under Habsburg rule. The Serbian calls fell on deaf ears, as Herenthal, following the annexation, was already in the process of working out a deal with the Turks in order to get official Ottoman recognition of the move. In order to drum up support for his cause, Izvolsky traveled to Paris and met with the new foreign minister, Stéphane Pichon. But the French were furious that their supposed Russian allies had made such a deal without consulting them first. Pichon told the gloomy Izvolsky that he'd better fix the mess he'd helped create, and that France had no interest in picking up the pieces. Now, this may seem like Pichon was simply being callous towards Izvolsky, but it does reflect a more complex problem. In October 1906, Maurice Rouvet's administration had fallen, and the first administration of George Clemenceau had come to power. When news of the Austrian annexation came to Paris, Clemenceau had been lobbied by French banks to pursue a course of non-intervention, because, speaking of convenient timing, the application period for the next round of loans to Russia was fast approaching. The bankers feared that if Clemenceau gave his government support to his Volsky, then it could encourage Russia to take a more aggressive stance towards Austria, which in turn could end up bringing Germany into the equation so Clemenceau had been forced to dangle the loan in front of his Volsky as encouragement for the foreign minister to fix the problem he had helped create. After being turned away from Paris, his Volsky traveled to London, and there he did find an audience with Sir Edward Grey. Grey, unlike Pichon, was a little more sympathetic. First, Grey was outraged that Austria had abandoned the 1878 Berlin Agreement so blatantly and without consultation from the other signatory powers but the English foreign secretary stopped short of fully supporting Russia. Gray was careful in that he was sympathetic to his Volsky, but if he did not support Austria violating the Berlin agreements, then he could not, in good faith, support Russia violating the same terms. Had his Volsky told Gray about his meeting with Herenthal beforehand, they may have been able to work out a compromise, but his Volsky had only succeeded in planting a seed of mistrust in Gray's mind because it brought into question the stability of the recently signed Entente. In a final attempt to win support, Izvolsky proposed a European conference, hoping that since a similar meeting had resolved the issue over Morocco, it could again help bring the annexation crisis to a close. Herenthal, on his part, agreed to the conference, but only on the condition that Austria's annexation be recognized immediately, 
and that the conference focused solely on Russian claims to the Bosphorus and Dardanelles. But the Serbs, still seething from the whole show, refused to participate, and Arenthal quickly withdrew his support. Meanwhile, in Berlin, news of the Austrian annexation was just as a shock to Wilhelm and von Bülow than it had been to anyone else. The Kaiser and Chancellor were taken aback by the apparent pompous attitude of their Austrian allies. Neither man opposed the annexation, and were actually quite supportive when Austria turned down the conference proposal, but like the English, essentially found themselves in a position where they had no other choice but to give a show of support to their ally. Remember, following the Algeciras conference, Germany was nursing its shot to the ego, and were compelled to stand by Austria because the fear of becoming encircled acted too well as a deterrent to pursue any other course. So by the end of October 1908, tempers were running high and patience was at an all-time low. The Austrian and Russian foreign ministers were locked in a smear campaign, where each man threatened to publish correspondence of the other. And by January 1909, it looked as though Izvolsky had lost the match, when Arenthal finally secured a settlement with the Turks and could now turn his attention towards the Serbs. The Serbians, who had been calling for compensation since October, were swiftly denied by the Austrian, who claimed that since Serbia had not been at the Berlin Congress in 1878, it had nothing to make their claims stick. So King Karakagorovic decided to make it clear that the Serbs were not fooling around, and ordered its army to begin mobilization. If this is starting to sound a lot like July 1914, then just hold on a few minutes, because it gets even more eerily similar. Upon hearing of the Serbian mobilization, Izvolsky, if he had any chance of redeeming his word, threw his support behind Serbia, and the Russians began to move troops to the frontier, and the Austrians followed suit in response. But it was all a bluff, and Herenthal knew it. That month, he had received assurance from Konrad von Hutzendorf, who informed Herenthal that Russia may try to make a show of force, but behind all the exhibitionism, it was still very much in recovery mode from its conflict with Japan, and was in no condition to become embroiled in another conflict so soon. Hutzendorf had made these observations after some support he received from Germany during December and January. The German chief of staff, Helmuth von Moltke the Younger, made assurances to Conrad that if Russia did send forces against Austria, then Germany would step in to assist. So in other words, if Russia did step in to help Serbia, it was a gamble that it had no hope of winning, because at the end of the day, the Tsar's forces were still far too war-weary, Without Russian support, Serbia would be forced to choose between backing down as well, or fighting Austria all alone, and it was unanimously agreed that the Austrians could win that showdown decisively. Now here is where many historians like to draw similarities between the Austro-Serbian crisis in July 1914 to the one here in 1908 and 1909. On March 21, 1909, the Germans, hoping to shake off the headache that was the Moroccan crisis, sent a telegraph to Izvolsky. The message, authored by Chancellor Bernard von Bülow, outlined that if Izvolsky did not agree to recognize the Austrian annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, then Germany would, quote, withdraw and let events take their course, unquote. There has been a lot of comparison between this and the infamous blank check which Germany would give Austria in July 1914, because the language here is a bit skewered. What does let events take their course mean? Certainly, it depends on how you read it. Did that mean that Germany would no longer restrain von Hutzendorf and allow Austria to attack the Serbs, or that von Bülow would turn it over to the German military and let them carry the baton for a bit? 
or it could simply mean that they're letting Izvolsky and the Russians make the final move, similar to the same tactic von Bülow used to get Del Casse ousted. Either back down now, or else it won't be our fault how we act. We are trying to be diplomatic here, after all. On March 22nd, the Russian ministers of war debated for over six hours about what to do next. And after weighing the internal issues, along with the 1904-1905 hangover, decided that it was a national best interest to bend to German demands. The ministers sent their decision to Tsar Nicholas, and the Russian emperor announced that his nation was backing down. The Russian decision to yield to the German ultimatum was another bitter humiliation for the country. It was about as devastating to morale and prestige as their defeat against Japan had been. But in one way, it was worse, because they had been forced to submit at the expense of their Serbian ally, and this was something no one could deny since everyone was now there to see it. In just four years, Russia had been dealt another major blow, but this time it was in the Balkans, an area which it had always felt to be the protectors of. Nicholas II summarized his nation's feelings by writing, quote, German action towards us has been simply brutal, and we won't forget it. For his part, Izvolsky would continue to deny the charges made about the meetings between here and Herenthal at Buchlau in September 1908. He would remain in office until September of 1910, when he was finally replaced by Sergei Zazanov, the future foreign minister who would advise the Serbs following the assassination of Ferdinand. Herenthal was praised in Vienna and Berlin for his stand against Russia, and would remain foreign minister until his death in 1912. The Bosnian crisis of 1908 and 1909 has received so much attention because of the eerie similarities it holds to July 1914. You have a dispute between the Austrians and Serbs, which began over events in Bosnia. Check that. The von Bülow telegraph on March 21st appears to be either an ultimatum to Russia or a pledge of support to Austria. You can check that as well. But unlike July 1914, this dispute was resolved peacefully. But this can largely be credited to the simple fact that in 1909, Russia was in no condition to go to war. But in 1914, it would be. It had backed down once when faced with German and Austrian intimidation. But the humiliation in doing so was a bitter lesson, which it resolved would never do so again. But where the Bosnian crisis had its most impact was in Vienna. Herenthal and Hutzendorf had stood firm in the face of Serbian and Russian demands, and many, including Herenthal's successor, Count Leopold von Berchtold, had taken notes. As long as the dual monarchy remained firm when confronted with threats in the Balkans, then it could eventually win out, so an aggressive policy towards Serbia became to be more accepted as time went on. When Archduke Ferdinand gets shot by a Serb nationalist in the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo, it was through this aggressive policy which the Austrians would react. It worked for them before, so they had no reason to doubt otherwise. Unfortunately, history does not always work out so evenly, and this sort of complacency would come to have disastrous consequences. The Bosnian crisis did not make war in 1914 inevitable. Neither did the alliance system make diplomacy any more difficult to manage. The cracks in the system had shown throughout the crisis. Herenthal and Izvolsky had chosen to meet in secrecy without consulting their allies, which meant that England, France, and Germany all had reasons to be suspicious of their eastern partners. This showed that in the case of France and Germany especially, that even military alliances leading to 1914 did not mean blind support of the other. There were always gaps in the system, and each nation was, at the end of the day, 
still capable of making their own foreign policy decisions. The option for diplomacy was always open. It was not as if the leaders in 1914 were acting out of some unjustified aggression. The crisis of 1908-1909 was still fresh on the minds of many decision makers in 1914. They are able to draw the similarities and pursue their courses accordingly, but unfortunately for millions in Europe and the Middle East, they were unable to calculate the changes that would make 1914 unique. The high cost of Balkan stability in 1909 meant that the cost of stability in 1914 would be much higher. Although war had been avoided, the possibility of collapse was now ever more present, as the Serbs and Russians were driven closer together by their now well-developed hatred of the Austrians. But these events would be in a vacuum if developments elsewhere did not occur. Next week, the Germans will attempt to further drive a wedge between the Anglo-French Entente by again stirring up trouble over Morocco, and the Italians, eager to establish their own national course, would declare war on the Ottomans over control of Libya. The Italian attack would further encourage the Slavs, notably the Serbians and Bulgarians, to band together and attempt to drive the Ottomans out of the Balkans for good. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you next week.